With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. At Lexia, we know literacy changes lives. As the gateway to the future for every student, literacy can boost their confidence and help them realize their full potential. Based on the science of reading, our literacy programs, along with all of those dedicated educators, can change the path of students' lives forever. We believe literacy can and should be for all. That's why at Lexia, we're all for literacy. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Special Operations, Covert Ops, Espionage, The Team House, with your hosts, Jack Murphy and David Park. Hey guys, this is episode 88 of The Team House. We're live. I'm Jack Murphy here with co-host Dave Park. And our guest tonight is uh, Dennis Franks. I got that right, right? Yeah, Dennis Franks uh, is a retired FBI agent, uh, served uh, 22 years with the FBI, right? Correct, yes. Um, so I know some of you thought we were going to have uh, Danny Colson on, actually, uh, tonight for part two. And so I, I no, no offense I, uh, at all, Dennis. No, I, I, I took him out. I took him out. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dennis had to. I'm sorry. Uh, Danny had to jump on a uh, flight for a business uh, at the last minute. So we will have we'll have him on another time. Um, we'll we'll do a part two with him. Um, but I really appreciate you jumping in at the last minute to uh, to switch here, Dennis. Yeah, my pleasure. Glad to. Yeah. So, uh, Dennis, uh, Jack, and I are both kind of big comic book nerds, and so one of the things that we always like to ask our guests is. What's your origin story? You know, um, how did you get your superpowers and become the hero that you right. are? Was it a radioactive right. spill or how did you grow up and, and what led you uh, towards the FBI? Yeah. Well, you know, you know the, you've heard people talking about the commercials, you know, does media have an effect on people? And, you know, my first response is why do corporations spend billions of dollars if it didn't have an effect? And I can tell you definitely that watching a TV show growing up had a big effect on me, which was about the FBI. So I grew up wanting to be an FBI agent. I, um, it, it just stuck with me. And I was, I was very focused. I was one of those kids who was very focused. Um, and, uh, you know, I probably I, I attribute you know, a couple of things to, to me being where I am is one, I was focused and I had a goal. 
and I achieved it. And the second was, um, you know, I, I started martial arts early in life, and it gave me even more focus and uh, self, you know, the dependence and confidence. So I don't think I'd be where I am now without you know, those things, as well as having the right, you know, family background and, um, you know, being you know, pretty clean cut. I mean, I grew up with, a, I grew up some guys where we cut up, we did some things that we probably shouldn't have. And fortunately, you know, when they don't look past, uh, you know, 18, when yeah. <laughs> looking at your background, um, but we weren't bad. We just did some things. You know? Yeah. Um, when did you start martial arts and was that also influenced by the media was you know it was it was Bruce Lee particularly um, back oh what was this show where he was the, uh, the sidekick to uh, this uh, Bruce guy and, and then his, his movies um, uh, Billy Jack before that uh-huh. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm dating myself well, I'm, I'm, I'm right there with you I remember Billy Jack and I think you're yeah, the, Billy, the green horn Billy Jack Bruce Lee um uh then you know Chuck Norris and so on, but yeah, particularly it, it was something about the the discipline and, um, and then the Eastern philosophy that attracted me. Yeah, uh, so I was I think I was four, I was fourteen when I started, which you know currently it's they started at all ages, you know, but uh, that was uh, it was it was a little unusual at that time to you know get into it when I did and in advance like I did and. And I was pretty much, you know, recognized in high school at that time because there weren't a lot of kids doing it then. Right. Now everybody does it. Right. You know, it's like every corner, you know, but, uh, which is great. Yeah. But, yeah. Anyway. Um, so you had the Green Hornet. You had... Uh, mm-hmm. There you uh, go. Kato, yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, David Carradine was probably the, the Kung Fu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Uh, uh, yeah, Kung Fu, the uh, a grasshopper, you know. Yeah. And it, 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 it all... It's... Um, you know, it all fit with my mindset in, in exploring other philosophies, and um, and it, when I was into it, it was it was like you really do unite the mind and the body. And you know, I had that at least for a while. I don't, I can't say I have it now, but uh, um, so it was neat. It was it was really good, uh, good thing to do, and um, that's that helped mold me. So. Yeah. So what did you, when you decided you wanted to be in the FBI, what was the path that you envisioned for yourself? And then what did you actually do? Did you plan to go to law school? Did you plan to just go to college? Yeah, it's um, when, you know, that time in pretty much now the past were, you know, either being a lawyer or um, CPA qualified or, which diverse background, which is, you know, any kind of degree, at least a bachelor's degree and three years of work experience, uh, their scientific backgrounds and, and so forth. But it, um, I decided, well, maybe I'll, I'll try accounting. I'll, I'll go that route. But that wasn't me. And even before, you know, that was my major. That's what I signed up for. But even before I took an accounting class, I said, no, this, I'm just not that oriented. I'm not business oriented. I'm not, so I switched it to political science. And, you know, I love political science because you're studying, you know, about current events, world affairs, you know, it's history, it's, it's everything. And, but there's not a lot you can do with that, you know, you know that degree unless you, you know, you are going to go on to law school or into politics or something. 
So I, I took a gamble and um, switched to political science and, and loved it. I mean, I just, uh, and, and I did well. And then, you know, I remember my advisor telling me that, you know, your, your chances of getting in the FBI is pretty, you know, minuscule, you know, based on statistics. Um, and your chances of getting to law schools, you know, not as, you know, not as uh, great a challenge, but, but I, I did. I got, you know, the law school did well, and um, I was a good student. I, I loved studying. Uh, I loved undergraduate school. Law school, I didn't really enjoy. I did well, but it wasn't, you know, still, uh, you know, it wasn't something I enjoyed doing. Um, and at the time, the hiring was a little uh, challenging because, you know, with budgets, uh, they have budgets where they can fund things. And this was back when, um, like, I was in college back during the Carter administration. So it's when, you know, interest rates were like 14, 18%, and the economy doesn't, wasn't doing well. So the federal budget wasn't doing well. So by the time I got um, in the early 80s, when I got out of law school, they weren't hiring a lot. So I said, you know what? I'll get, um, I'll give. I went through this ordeal of law school. I'll, I'll give it a try. So I worked for a law firm for about six months, and I just didn't enjoy it. So then I applied for the district attorney's office. And when I was in college, I interned in the honors program with the DA's office. So the DA knew me, so he hired me, and and it was a great experience. I, I was a prosecutor for two and a half years. You you learn to think on your feet. You go up, you, you know, sometimes you prepare a, a case, a trial, literally, in 30, 15 minutes, 30 minutes. Talk to your witnesses, you know, get everything together. So you really had to think on your feet. And, and at times, we're, you know, I'd go up against some of the best lawyers in town. This was in Raleigh, North Carolina. And, and it, was, it was a great experience. But still, what do I do from there? You know, do I want to do that for a career? Do I want to become a judge? No. Don't want to work. You know, I had some offers to go with law firms, but it's like, no, it's just it's not me. I want to be uh, like in, and, and I'll go back a little bit. In, in college, I had a um, trigonometry and uh, teacher and everything, and he was a PhD in, in aerospace engineering. And I remember in class one day, he went around to each of us. He said, what do you want to do with your life? And I said, I don't want the house with the white picket fence, the two and a half kids and everything. Not yet. I want a life of adventure. I want to go out, see the world, you know, do things. And that's what I still wanted, you know, after being an you know, assistant VA. So uh, I applied. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Again, and um, got in, and uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, it was great. It was a great, great experience. It was the you know I got to live my dream, and um, it, it was uh, I got to see and do things. 
Being a parent can be really challenging. Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them on their parenting journey. Everyone deserves someone they can turn to for help with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Being a parent can be really challenging. It's normal to feel uncertain about whether you're doing the right things to raise healthy and happy children. That's why Child and Family Resource Network focuses on connecting pregnant parents and those with kids under the age of five with free support services to help them build confidence in their parenting journey. Everyone deserves to have someone they can turn to for support with parenting. Visit childandfamilyresourcenetwork.org today. Um, you know, obviously you guys have done that too, and uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. But there's a, you know, there's kind of a shelf life there, and at some point it's like it's time to move on. So, right, right. Yeah. So <laughs> what, what was your impression when you, when you got hired and you show up, to the, up at the FBI Academy? Because mm-hmm. uh, you weren't former military, so th- this was like your boot camp in a way, you know, right. the regiment right. and everything. Yeah, you know, the, the FBI Academy is not, as opposed to like, I noticed with the DA Academy, they were more regimented. It was more like a boot camp for them. Okay. With us, the average age of the, the new agent is like 29 or 30. Oh, really? Okay. Because they want to get people with broad experience, you know. So they treated us like, like it was more like graduate school or something. But, you know, they still, you know, would kick us in the butt. And uh, so it was nothing at all like boot camp or, or anything. And they, they, I would say they treated you with a certain amount of respect, too, because you're not some, you know, 18-year-old kid who's trying to find their way around. Right. Um, but they bring out the best in you. They still challenge you because... At Baker's, no matter where you order free pickup, you get the same great deals as you'd get in store. So you can save when you order during band practice or at the dog park or wherever. Start your cart with the Baker's app and save from wherever today. Baker's, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply. Subject to availability. You can save an extra $10 when you spend 40 or more on a great selection of participating items. Just look for the signs and save at Baker's. They, they have you challenge yourself because, they, you know, the basics were the classroom, um, which is a broad range of, of topics. Uh, then, um, you know, physical fitness, defensive attack. Hold on one second. We just lost. Sorry, there you okay. go. We're back. Okay. So there are roughly, you know, three categories. And... Um, and it, while I, I'll say this, it wasn't extremely challenging, but I challenged myself. So, um, you know, I did well in classroom academics. Uh, I did um, I did well in the physical fitness. I think I was like third in the class. I, you know, I don't, you know, it's funny when when you're in the government and you have above top secret clearance, you don't talk about yourself. You don't. You know, you're very modest. And, and my my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, I'd come home, and she'd say, what'd you do today? And I'd go, I, I can't talk about it, you know. Yeah. But when you get out in the private sector, you know, which I have been for a number of years, you know, I was taught, I had some mentors, they said, you got to talk about yourself. you got to let people know who you are. So um, 
So I'm not as modest as I, I used to be. So anyway, getting back to the, the academics, I did well academically. I think I was third in physical fitness. In my shooting, I had developed a, a hand injury in shooting. But when it came to, um, so I, I did well, but it wasn't like the top or anything. I was having to get rehab on my hand and everything. But when it came to the testing at the end of, of the school, um, the, I, there was a combat course. And there was one person who scored 100 on the combat course. And the instructor said, you're never going to guess who did this. And it, and it was me. So that gave me even more incentive once I got into the division to, you know, apply for the SWAT team, you know, early and, uh, you know, take the test and, and get on. And also, I, I went on to fire as instructor. Hold on. Lost sound again. Sorry. Okay. Sorry about that. So you, you, uh, we lost you right when you uh, were saying... That you applied for the SWAT team early. Yeah, I was I was still a brand new agent when I applied for the SWAT team, and, and I got accepted, passed the test, and, and at the same time I applied for um, firearms instructor school, and got accepted to that. Went to training, and, and you know passed that. So I became a firearms instructor at the same time. Um, I made the SWAT team. Um, at the same time, I was doing you know, working organized crime and, and drug cartel investigations. So, you know, the good thing, one of the great things about the FBI is that we got to wear a lot of hats. If you wanted to, right. you could do a lot of things. You know, I became a crisis management coordinator in addition to the other things. Case agent, um, you know, became a supervisor. Uh, and um, I was a legal advisor. I, um, I became an undercover program coordinator because I ran and um, operated a lot of undercover operations uh, working drug cartels now when when you got assigned did you have a choice of where you went or what types of crimes you would work right um we were given the opportunity to put down three choices but we had this kind of going ongoing joke about how we were selected and i think there's some logic to it but it seemed like it was like this we had this joke that you got assigned to wherever this monkey came out in the dark hit on the map. Right. And that's pretty much the way it was. But, you know, once you find some, like, former cops would get assigned to areas where they would be doing more typical law enforcement, like Indian reservations, you know, in, in more rural areas, perhaps. Uh, so I'm sure there's some logic to it, but I, I don't know what it was. So I got, you know, I got assigned to Houston, Texas, which is not my, you know, top three. And, and at first I was like, Houston, I mean, this is that you know, Cowtown or something. But there was a guy in my class, Bob Casey, who was a, 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 an investigator cop and in, uh, detective in, in Houston. And he said, oh, no, no, let me tell you, you you're going to love it. It's, it's a great place, fourth largest city in the country. And it, it, he was right. I mean, it turned out to be uh, a remarkable place to be because uh, during the late 80s, in the early 90s, the, the drug traffickers shifted, or the, the Colombian traffickers, Colombian cartels, shifted from South Florida to bringing things through Mexico and then through Texas, and, and Houston became one of the epicenters for drug trafficking. So we had just a 
remarkable, uh, you know, investigations and fraud undercover operations, Title III wiretaps, long-term, you know, cases, and we work, you know, a lot against Cali Cartel and then the Gulf Coast Cartel out of Mexico, which we, we did a very good job of uh, dismantling at the time. They they fill in and, you know, fill back, but we, we prosecuted a lot of cartel members, and uh, we had a good time doing it. You know, at that time, we would work hard and play hard at the same time. I don't think, you know, anybody can do that anymore, but yeah, it was, it was great. Now, so when you showed up, I, I imagine that in a place like Houston, the office for the FBI, there's a lot of different crimes. There's a lot of different divisions mm -hmm. or departments. Did you ask for drugs? Did you not ask for drugs, but did you? Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. I know that. Hold on. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> That's okay, guys. Uh, and I appreciate you bearing with us a little bit tonight. Um, it's uh, we're, we're working with our producer that we just brought on. It's not his fault. Uh, we're getting him yeah. up to speed and working on no, just, different camera yeah. shots. Thank you, Dennis. Okay. No, I just got back in, and um, my my wife and daughter were out, and so I had the dogs in here, and but they just got back in, so I sent the dogs back out. But um, no, uh, you know, actually, I think what happened was that the the supervisor, there was a squad at the time, and it was called um, C1, or they had a lot of criminal squads that did typical, but there was, I think there was, at that time, there was only one squad that worked organized crime and drug trafficking. So the supervisor actually picked me once they, they had the list of people coming. There were four people in my class who came um, in bulk, and so he picked me, and he knew that I was a lawyer and had this, you know, former prosecutor, so he, he signed me to some of the investigations to do, do I still have you? Uh, yeah, we're here, we got you. Okay, mm -hmm. to um, to work on, you know, Title Three affidavits and so forth, and one of the first ones I worked on was with a, uh, a former army um, officer who had a case in, in Galveston. So we, we had an offsite on, on the, it wasn't exactly a beach, but it was a, a cottage. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had set up monitoring station there. And, and I got to know, you know, Delmer pretty well then. And he, he'd gone to a similar path that I think you guys had, had gone through. Uh, never told anybody, but me, I, I think, that he worked with about his background. And uh, so it, it was a lot of great people I worked with, with a lot of talent. And, and that's the thing about the FBI is their, um, their selection process. I think they do a good job of the psychological profile because they're diverse backgrounds. I mean, they're former military. Some of people, you know, some are really hardcore there are some who are like former teachers, stockbrokers, um, scientists. There's a, I know a, an agent who was a veterinarian. And, but I think what they do is they find this, this psychological profile that we have where we really want to do the right thing. And, and for the most part, we're team players. Right. So working with, with Dale and, and, and other guys with just immense talents, it, it was, uh, just a, a real pleasure 
And what I found is that the ages could be very, very creative. And I think that was another key. Um, I go back and look at like the AppScan investigation that uh, the FBI conducted against Congress back in the early 80s, I think, before my time. But I, I, I know agents who worked it and they didn't have a budget. They didn't have resources, but they, they made things happen. And, and there was this saying sometimes is you sometimes instead of asking for permission, Yes, you do something, you ask for forgiveness, and that's a lot of what they did. Right. And that, that creativity just made it successful. And I, I've seen that throughout my career where um, just there's just a that creativity will, will make things happen and get investigations accomplished and, and phenomenal things done. Yeah. And it's not like it used to be, but I think there are really still really good, talented agents out there who are working hard. And, you know, just trying to do the right thing. How did they prepare you for, for, uh, you had the academy, but I imagine undercover ops, you know, as an attorney and then, in, mm -hmm. you know, as a FBI agent, like how did they prepare you to go undercover? Do you take acting classes or did they just kind of throw you out <laughs> there to the wind? No, that, that's a whole, that's a different thing. But, um, but, um, I, uh, the, the undercover, the certified undercover agents would have to go through a school. Oh, really? And uh, one of my colleagues that works for me in my company now, and he's, he's been a great friend throughout our careers, and he, he went on. He was in Houston for a while. He had been to other divisions and came to Houston and then left again, and then he, he moved back to, to the Houston area. And um, Lenny was one of the best undercover agents the Bureau's ever had, and he became an instructor. So there's an intense school that certified undercover agents have to go through, and it's um, it's very challenging. They put them on the spot, they, they give them obstacles, and it, it's, it's, you know, to, to go deep undercover, it takes a lot of uh, gumption, <laughs> for a uh, technical term, and, uh, and thinking on your feet, and creativity again and and i'll just put, say this about lynn too he um when he retired from the fbi he was hired by uh, the uk to uh go work there and uh, to work undercover um, by an intelligence agency there for about two years and uh and it's funny because Len is from South Carolina, and you know he has this good old boy accent. So it's funny. I, it's, I'm sure nobody suspected him of being, you know, an undercover or law enforcement or intelligence when he was in uh, Britain. But really talented guy. A lot, a lot of talented people I worked with. Um, I had, uh, and, I, and I, I'll say this: I always had an affinity for military because um, I'll, I'll get to my father in a minute, but. There were a lot of uh, former military that I worked with, and um, and then we had military assigned to our task force, the drug task force. I ran an intelligence squad for a while, where I was a supervisor on one, and we had a number of military analysts assigned to us. Because at that time, it's part of the drug uh, trafficking effort, the military was giving us personnel, and the coordination was tremendous. and the, the assets they brought to the table were also tremendous. 
but what I what I realized in in doing working with these uh, you know military personnel who were assigned to us and training with military and that the military I mean you you had to do more with less you didn't get um, you know always get the best assignments or recognition or resources and and never recognized really so um, you know kudos to all the military out there um, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you and um, you don't get recognized like you should now I'll, I'll back up my father you know when I my father um, and mother were I was like the third child and uh, I think I just happened but you know they were little older when I was born but my, my father was in, uh, in World War two he was actually in the uh, 83rd infantry 333rd I think artillery and he saw five campaigns in, in World War two including uh, d-day um, Baston, you know, he was in Battle of the Bulge, wow. and you know, um, the Argonnes and some other you know places, and you know, he grew up during the Great Depression. Uh, he you know, grew up on a farm. He quit school in the sixth grade uh, to help to work and help support the family, which was you know they were on a farm, and uh, he had. A brother and let's see, a sister, uh, two sisters, and he, I don't even think he was oldest, but he, he just decided he would quit and work. So he's worked since he was in sixth grade. Now he only had a sixth grade education. So when he went into the army and he came out, um, he started building. He had an uncle who was a, a carpenter and built houses. So my father worked with him, learned, and, and my uncle, by the way, didn't even have, we never went to school, but, or his uncle, rather, was my great uncle, who I, I met, but uh, he learned from him how to build houses, and my father had this great mathematical mind. He could sit down with um, a legal pad and, and figure out all the material, all the wood, all the material he would need to build a house, he was almost always exact. He was noted for that, you know, because sometimes you you underestimate and you have to go buy more. Sometimes you overestimate and you're stuck with it. But he was always very precise. And since then, I, I talked to um, you know my mother knew uh, people that he went to school with, and found out that he was actually when he was in school, you know, one through six, he was tutoring other students in math. So he had this. Tremendous mathematical mind without the, the education. So, but I respect um, that generation because they what they went through and lived through the Great Depression and what he faced in you know World War Two, and obviously he's never talked about it. Um, he passed away in 1990. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered ChumbaCasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Three, yeah. 
94. And toward the end, he would, he would start talking more about his experiences. And, um, and I regret that I didn't ask him more. But he, you know, it's just something they, they kept in. And, yeah. uh, anyway, a lot, a lot of respect for uh, you know, those who served in the military. I have some really good friends now who you know, served in Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And one of my best friends is, uh, uh, you know, he's, we're, we're, he's a connoisseur of booze. Um, and uh, so we, we have a lot of good time. And he, he showed me mutual respect one time. When, first time we met, our wives had met. And it was kind of one of these things where you tell your, your wives not to meet people on social media and stuff, but they did. And they met up. And then they, you know, we, they came over one night to like a driveway party and he brought me a bottle of uh, really expensive, you know, scotch. And uh, anyway, we, we, he's a great guy and we've been great friends and he's, he's helped me, you know, since then connect with some uh, former military guys and, and actually current military guys when I had a contract with the uh, Super Bowl in Houston to provide security. So I brought in not only you know guys that work with me but some you know recently um guys who recently left the military and, and actually a couple of um you know ongoing military that i guess they got permission to, to do it but anyway it was uh it, it was a great experience uh and great guys just uh, uh had we had a, a good time anyway i'm kind of rambling no, it's good. This is again. This isn't. We don't have a really formal interview style here. Uh, you're sitting there drinking Suntory. Uh, it's any time is Suntory time in that film or Um And Jack and I are enjoying the Freud. So okay, uh, we're just having a conversation. So at what point were you? You said you got into SWAT early. Mm -hmm. uh, and what was? that life for you because last week we had Danny on and we heard what SWAT was like in the 70s and I know that it progressed and and actually became a lot more professionalized mm -hmm. uh, so what was it what was the volunteer and the training process like for you you know it was um you you went through the testing and then there was the uh you know training that you would go to but um a, a lot was just in doing it and in you know, our constant training. Um, the SWAT team leader when I got on was, uh, was Gordon Smith. And Gordon played uh, football for the Vikings. And he was this big Hulk guy and, and just a really a, a good leader. And then um, after him, I'm trying to think where there, a lot had to do with your your team, the overall team leader, and I became an assistant team leader myself. But we did you know training, um, and we became Houston became an enhanced team, which means we we got to train more, we got more equipment, um, and we would do our regional training, which was San Antonio Division, Dallas Division, El Paso Division, and a lot of it had to do with uh, oil related. We we did training on oil rigs. Um, in, in the coldest I've ever been was out in an oil rig and out in the ocean and it just, it was brutal. And in the, going back to what you said about Danny, in the early days, we didn't necessarily have all the gear, uh, that we needed. And 
so it, it was we didn't have you know cold weather gear necessarily it, it came along we got you know better gear and better equipment like i said but um we had a good time it was just we i loved the training uh, i loved the camaraderie and um you know there were you know times we got to do things that um you know, I think we're important. Um, you know, I was in Waco, that deal for five weeks. And um, that was a no-win situation. You know, unfortunately, it was just, and I, I kind of realized that from the beginning. And I've said this before, talking to other people, but there, um, it was the siege and Koresh had, you know, basically brainwashed his, his group and, there were negotiations going and HRT was there and, you know, SWAT teams from the region were there. And basically our responsibility was covering perimeter. And at some point they, they negotiated with Crest to, to let go of a couple of uh, children. And um, I got picked, I don't even know how now, but I got picked with another agent to, to drive to a rendezvous point and pick up two kids. And, one of them, they might have both been girls, it was a boy and girl, but there was one girl I just I remember vividly. I'm driving them, we're driving them to the command post, which was uh, an airport hangar. And I'm looking in the rearview mirror at the girl's eyes, and I'm just thinking, gosh, you're just so innocent. And I just had this overwhelming feeling that this is not going to go well for either side. And, and, you know, it, it didn't really, you know, it didn't really go well, ultimately. Um, it was what it was. Uh, you know, crashed that place on fire. Um, and there were two, um, one of our team leaders who came along later on the SWAT team was on HRT at that time. And he was one of two HRT members who rushed in to rescue people who came out either burning or came out. They were, uh, you know, facing uh, fire from weapons, and they received awards for that. But uh, he was one of the guys that uh, did that and became our, you know, SWAT, Houston SWAT team leader at some point. And we had, you know, other leaders, and um, again, we, we had to, you know, we, we tend to train hard, and, you know, in the early days, we, we had a good time to um you know, there were other missions we went on that, like, uh, raiding a meth lab where we had to go to Dallas, and um, it was a multi-division, you know, operation, and there was a lot of rain that week, so we, we'd have to, you know, hang out. We, I forgot where we stayed, but we ended up going, you know, to these bars and, you know, just making the best of it for, like, you know, five days, and then finally... We, we had our operation and went, you know, went inserted overnight, went to the woods and, um, you know, crawled up on the place. And, and it, it's just funny how you think about these memories. Like there was one guy on our team that uh, had never, he was from Connecticut. He'd never been around, you know, cows or, or bulls or anything. We were going to these pastures and, and it was just, you know, bull that started making some noise and it's like, didn't know how to, to deal with that. And then there was another another guy who uh, we got closer, in, and he was just a comedian. He started making jokes, and you're supposed to be quiet. And you know how it is at night, how noise travels. And we were trying not to laugh, and he was just kept joking. 
And uh, anyway, a lot of stories. And that one of the guys was advancing in, and he had a snake run across his, his hand as, as he was crawling in. And, um, a, lot of, a lot of good memories. Um, one, back in my era, there were a number of guys who had actually served in Vietnam, and uh, they, were, they were tremendous. There, there was one guy, we did a, um, an operation on a oil rig where they, Half the, the teams, we went out on uh, helicopters and landed and did our, you know, operation. And, and then when we left, we had to go out on Coast Guard cutters because the other half had come in on Coast Guard cutters. And it, it was rough. The seas were rough, so the, co the Coast Guard cutter couldn't come up close to the oil rig. So we had to, the oil rig had actually had a rope to be able to drop down, so they brought out beams. So we had to drop jump on the rope and, and drop down into the dinghies and of course you know you've done this stuff too more more so but we had all this body armor and weapons and everything so we had to time it right jump down into the dinghies but then we had to go over to where the the coast guard cutter was and it's rocking back and forth so we had to jump up time it jump up and grab the net and pull ourselves up now i'm, I'm talking about this because it's I, I remember this humorous stuff. You know, that's if I ever do a, a you know podcast or a show or anything, I want to do the the humorous stuff because that's you know that's that's important. That's that's what I remember. But the the guy that was in front of me jumping up was about five foot six. But Jack was a tunneler in Vietnam, so you're talking about nerves of steel, right. and nothing phased him. But Jack jumps up, and he barely made the edge, and his legs were just going back and forth. So I just started laughing. <laughs> it's like, you know, and he, unfortunately, he made it, but it's just, just another one of those stories where you, um, you know, relate. And, and I think uh, once we got on the cutter, there's the one guy who got sick, uh, seasick going back, was a Marine. So we gave him hell, of course. Um, anyway, just some of the stories it, it was just a remarkable experience uh, an opportunity I, I got to live a dream yeah so how did you get brought into doing uh undercover ops I, i'd like to talk a little bit about some of those missions and, or some of those assignments investigations that you were involved in uh going after drug cartels um i think i read in your bio that you also had some experiences with the russian mafia yeah so um, working the, the long-term cartels, you, you utilize all kinds of resources. And we had undercover operations, what we called group twos, group ones and group twos. And you had to get all kinds of approvals. We have long-term uh, undercover agents that we would insert into them. And, uh, and usually those were, you know, because of dealing with, uh, you know, Colombian cartels and uh, Mexican cartels, they were, they needed to be native you know, speakers. I mean, yeah, I wasn't going to fit in. So um, they would go undercover and I became a early on a, a contact agent for them, which means I would be, I would meet with them after their work during the day, would go out at night and get a dinner, basically it's to keep them sane and, you know, let them know, keep them connected, you know, to us. And, and when they would go with meetings, which uh, at the time happened to be, you know, a, a lot of times for some reason the, the cartel guys like to go to the topless bars. So, you know, we'd have to go in and cover them. And, and, and actually, believe it or not, they kind of got old. But um, 
we would you know provide security from while they were in there and um, the the little bit limited bit of undercover work I did was like as uh, a financial guy, you know, because uh, you know, here I am this gringo, um, and I remember in New York I went to, we were up there working and I was sitting at a dinner table, and this was kind of a surreal experience. There was a Colombian, a Mexican, a Puerto Rican, a Cuban. I think there was somebody from Spain. And then me, and, and I was sitting there thinking, "Wow, this is this is kind of surreal." I'm, I'm going to remember this, and, and, and I still do. Um, but the undercover to work in undercover, you really you kind of have to volunteer. I mean, sometimes you may get picked, and like I said, you have to have the training, you have to have the backstopping, and um, and, and they just put you out there, and it's 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 risky. And, uh, but it's effective. So based on the fact that I was a case agent on a lot of undercover operations, which I, um, I probably ran, I don't remember now, 12 or 15 undercover operations as part of an overall investigation. And once I was promoted to supervisory position at some point, in addition to the other responsibilities I had, they, they asked me to be an undercover program coordinator which I enjoyed doing. I did that for probably um, eight years or so. And I was responsible for kind of overseeing and administratively monitoring all the undercover operations and undercover agents for all the programs, whether it was uh, you know, counterterrorism, national security, um, you know, criminal violations. So it was just another opportunity to, to really experience all, all the FBI had. Um, so I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, would, I would be also interested in hearing like a, a little overview about the situation with the Mexican and Colombian drug cartels at that time. I take it this was mostly in the 1990s that you were going yeah. after these groups. Yeah. Um, what, what was their MO at the time? How did they operate? How were they organized? And if there are some examples of the undercovers that you ran from, like, pro cases that have been prosecuted that you're able to talk about, I think I, I, it would be fascinating to hear some of those details. Yeah. Um, so one thing I realized about the cartels, and, and you've seen this if you've watched, you know, Narcos and Narcos Mexico, which I finally did. I, I kind of resisted at first, but then I watched it, and it's extremely well done. But... Um, the thing I noted early on about the cartels is that they they became ingenious business-wise. They learned to adapt to the business climate and what worked. So what we found was, and, and this has been you know shown later, is like the the Colombian cartels realized that their loads were getting, you know, seized out on the seas and, you know, in the Caribbean and Caribbean and um, Florida and everything. So they're like, ah, I don't want to work with the Mexicans, but they have this history of getting contraband across the border. They've been doing it, whether it's, you know, cigarettes, marijuana, um, you, you name it. They've been doing this for, for decades and very successfully. So, Eventually, they started working with them. And again, it's that business model. It, it, they may be competitors. They may not um, get along. But 
it, if it's good for business, they adopted it. And they did, so they started working with the Mexican cartels. And at first, they would, um, there was like, a, there was a payment for, you know, every shipment that uh, Mexican cartels got across. But at some point, they started, you know, dividing the loads, like the, the Mexican cartel, which we focused on the Gulf, Gulf cartel, which was, you know, the, um, you know, eastern, you know, toward the Gulf, you know, Matamoros and down. And they would get 50% of the loads. So you had, like, the Colombians would get their their shipments brought across, and then the, the Mexican cartels would bring their shipments across, too. So what we were able to do at some point was infiltrate the cartels and get into the shipment aspect of it and introduce our, our um, undercovers. And we would have these... Um, we did a lot of what we would call controlled deliveries, and which we would, undercovers would arrange for the shipments, and sometimes they'd be flown in, sometimes they'd be driven across the border, and you would receive them. All right, so working undercover, we would do the next part, was take it to the, the, the next um, person in the ladder, which was, you know, going to take it to New York or Chicago or somewhere. But along the way, while we were delivering the load, the load would get um, confiscated and get pulled over. And by, um, you know, by law enforcement, and it just a just random seizure. Mm -hmm. So then they would get arrested and so forth, the, the ones you know, receiving it, and then we'd work our way back up the ladder at some point, you know, as far as putting the case together. And we did a lot of controlled deliveries, and we, we got pretty creative, too, as far as how we would uh, secrete the loads. We would use, um, and, and this was in a case, so I can I can reveal it, where we took a, a pallet of plywood, and we actually cut out the center of the, the pallet of plywood, put, I don't know how much, it was probably 200 kilos of cocaine in it, then put, you know, three full layer of layers of uh, the plywood back on top, nailed all together, put in a, a rental truck. And of course we had the rental truck so that it would, um, we could control it, I'll put it that way. Mm -hmm. And we had, you know, a lot of surveillance and everything. And uh, so anyway, it was all coordinated. And there was one one situation where we did that and, and the surveillance had a little difficulty keeping up, which is not unusual. Without, so you don't get disclosed. But the load went into uh, a garage somewhere at the house, and we weren't sure. So we're sweating bullets because you don't want to lose, you know, multi-million dollars worth of, of cocaine. You know, you're going to pay the price, um, you know, administratively. And one of the, the surveillance agents, again, this creativity, he, he started walking around the neighborhood. And fortunately... There was a, this garage had window panes in it. And we had put, again, this, this load had gone into the back of a pickup truck. And we covered it with a Christmas tree. So he could see the Christmas tree. And that saved our butt. I mean, <laughs> saved it, you know, at that time, my supervisor's butt, which he was phenomenal. So we were, we kind of rejoiced in, in the fact that we were able to, to do that. So there were um, 
operations like that. And then, for example, against the Gulf Cartel, there were a series of seizures, not only by the FBI, the DEA, the DEA, Don, probably even Texas DPS. And we put together a uh, what's called a RICO case, which is racketeering influence corruption um, organizations against the Gulf Cartel. And we took all these seizures that had been done over years, and I became one of the case agents and became what was considered an expert witness in that. And we would put together seizures totaling, um, I think it was 10 tons of cocaine. And conversely, we also did the money going south. We, we did seizures there, uh, undercover operations, where we did the same thing, just in reverse. And uh, we had... I don't remember how much money we'd seized, but there were times when we literally would take suitcases with a million dollars in it. And, you know, that brings up the question, were you ever tempted? No, because it didn't seem real to begin with. And it just wasn't, never was consideration. And, and it never would be the, worth the consequences of, you know, going to San Quentin or somewhere for you know, 20 or 30 years just based on money but it was it's phenomenal and there was one case that um it, it was a a national from a, a country you never would have thought you were driving the load and I, I won't go into it but he um he was arrested uh his his father was an intelligence agent for this other country and the attorney representing him um, went to Mexico. Uh, basically, you know, somebody hired him, paid his fees. He went to Mexico. He, he told me, pulled me aside one day. He said, "Hey, here's what happened. I went to Mexico. They blindfolded me. They drove me to somewhere. This office building. I went in there. There were all these phone banks, and there were like five different languages I could discern that were being spoken." On, on these phone banks oh. and so this it, it's an example of this elaborate money laundering oper operation that um i would even speculate to help fund an, an intelligence agency of another country now i'll just leave it at that yeah um, so anyway a lot of um you know the, the cases were put together uh, and, and there were mass prosecutions, and like I said, we, we actually ended up capturing the, the head of the Gulf Cartel, Juan Garcia Brego, and um, I had, we had this big blow-up of all the members that had posed for a big picture at one time, and I would testify, and I'd go like, yeah, he's in U.S. prison, he's in Mex Mexican prison, he's in, um, uh, he escaped. Uh, this one uh, was killed by the organization. This was killed by another organization, and, and and I could go throughout. But you know, it's like it's like cut off the head of the dragon, and the, you know, the head you know, grows back at some point. So yeah, uh, Dennis, for the FBI operations, some of these undercover cases that you were managing uh, the, as a contact officer, how long would these guys be undercover for generally? You know, it varied. Um, it would be, you know, sometimes six months, sometimes a year, sometimes longer. Um, 
it would, um, and sometimes it was just in incremental. It, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have to be, you know, actually inserted into the organization. It could be just meetings, you know, occasional. Um, but it, uh, you know, I had a lot of respect for those guys, and you know, you all know about Joe Stone, you know, infiltrating the the Italian mafia in New York. And, you know, I had beers with him one night at the, the academy because we actually had a, uh, uh, you know, room where we could go in at night when we wanted to and, you know, have beer, pizza, and whatever. And uh, I met him in there, and it's, it, he was one of the, the original ones, who, and he dealt with a lot. He, he um, sacrificed a lot, I would say, at least as far as what he had to do, and, and he didn't get the support he needed, and uh, it, it changed a lot over the years, improved, but he he was on the cutting edge of it. Um, yeah, yeah. How how did you when you were undercover, or especially some of the guys who maybe were inserted in the organizations? Mm -hmm. How do they manage? They're undercover as a criminal. How do they manage being law enforcement, mm -hmm. but expecting these expecting to engage in criminal like behaviors? Well, it, it takes a talent because one of um, one of my former supervisors, uh, Phil, did a lot of undercover op operations in New York when he was assigned there. He did uh, organized crime, he did drug uh, trafficking investigations where he was inserted. And and Phil was you know, when you asked that initially, I was going to say you can't be an Eagle Scout necessarily, but Phil was an Eagle Scout. So you just have to take on a persona. You have to, um, it, it, it is in a way, it is like emerging, you know, immersing yourself into an acting role where you take on the character. You have to, to be that character or you're not going to survive. And, you know, there's certain things you do along that line, which I won't really get into, but you, uh, but at the same time, that's why it's important to have the, the contact agents where they right. keep you in reality. They're, they're like, hey, you know, remember who you really are, and you know, we're, we're good guys, and, and, and so forth. Uh, you know, it's not to say that you know. Occasionally, there have been some who've gone you know to the other side because they just got so immersed in it. Yeah. So it's, you know, that's a challenge. Well, I imagine the other side can be kind of seductive. You know, I, they're. There's yeah. danger, but there's glamour. I'm sure there's mm -hmm. money. Girls. I, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I haven't seen that personally, but I've, I've heard about it, you know, happening in you know, Florida, you know, at some point where, you know, guys did um, um, go to the other side. And, and, and I'll say this, too. One of the, the aspects of working these investigations, you, you deal with corruption from... Uh, you know, particularly with other agencies, local agencies, and so forth. And one of the most interesting experiences I remember was going to um, this supervisor I had, Phil, who had done a lot of undercover work in New York. He and I went to uh, South Texas, in, which was the very tip to for an investigation, and we had to meet with uh, an agent who was actually a supervisor with another agency. 
Now, I won't name the agency, but we were pretty sure that he was corrupt um, because we, you know, we just had information. And the problem with the border at that time was that, um, particularly if they were related, you know, say, you know, if it was Border Patrol or Customs or whatever, a lot of good personnel that they dealt with stuff I would never want to deal with. Yeah. But if they grew up in the area and they had family, and there was family on the other side, and, and this is shown out in, you know, narcos and, and so forth, that they could be co-opted easily. You know, hey, we've got, we've got family members over here, better work for us, or... You know, we're going to take care of them. So it was kind of a no-win situation. But anyway, we, we went into a meeting with this this agent from another agency. And it seemed, you know, while we were talking to him about a legitimate investigation that we're, he's, he's starting to ask us, like, where, where are you guys staying? You know, and we were staying on the South Padre Island at a hotel. And we were like, oh, you know, we're staying on the island. And he kept kind of been coming back to it. It's like, where are you guys staying? You know, and we kind of dance around and avoid the topic. And you know, it's 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 interesting where I, I you know obviously he needed to know for a reason. I, I don't know what would have happened if we found out, and maybe we even had you know some surveillance on us when we left the office. I don't know whatever happened, you know, to, to that agent or the other agency. Um, I think he probably, you know, eventually you know, was uncovered and some, you know, uh, arrested and everything. But it was it was an interesting cat and mouse experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was there was an occasion which I was assigned as a member of a five team. You know, well, five-member team of FBI agents to investigate a very sensitive uh, national security matter, and we we worked it for about a year or so, and we actually were inserted into um, a South American country without, uh, at least initially, our own embassy knowing about us, and because um, it dealt with you know something going on at the embassy. And it, that was a, a, a really fun experience because, you know, at some point you, you realize that you're being picked up on, but you don't know if it's the foreign government. You don't know if it's foreign government working for the cartels. You don't know if it's the cartels. Or you don't even know if it's your own guys or, you know, agency personnel watching you. So it was kind of kind of thrilling uh, experience. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. So that, that was sort of like an anti-corruption type operation, I take it? It was, yeah, anti-corruption and um, national security in the sense that uh, there were national security um, issues with what was being accessed. Oh, geez. So how, how, what was the result of that investigation after a year? We, we solved it, and we actually um, we got cooperation, tremendous cooperation from the, the Colombian government. The, the, um, we were able to do things on their premises that had never been done before. They had allowed us to conduct uh, certain aspects of the investigation. Uh, so it was remarkable. 
and, and, and that's the thing about, um, you know, there was obviously a lot of corruption in South America and you know, Mexico and everything. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, you know, police aren't played, uh, paid enough. They're just a history of it. And um, it doesn't justify it, but yet you kind of understand why. But it was remarkable that when you do get the cooperation and, and the, the guys who want to do the right thing, which we did in that case, and one of the hats I, I've worn before is um, as an international teacher, uh, international instructor, and I, I taught at the International Law Enforcement Academy in uh, Bangkok. Um, a couple of times, and then uh, Middle East Law Enforcement or FBI Middle East Law Enforcement um, Center in uh, Dubai or outside of Dubai, and then I taught with um, that was with Department of State, but I, I worked with the Department of Defense in teaching uh, police in Romania uh, about uh, crisis management in the. the context of weapons of mass destruction. But an interesting thing I, I experienced in teaching in Bangkok was, and this was organized crime investigations, we had students from pretty high-level police you know, officers from 13 countries. Now, three of the countries were Republic of China, Vietnam, and Macau, which were communist, still communist countries. Now, in, in, it's like a UN setting. They've got you know earphones on. They've got translators sitting do this and everything. And what I found was like the the officers from the People's Republic of China would feel a need to kind of wave the flag and pound the table to promote you know the PRC at times. But when it came to breaks and, and after class, they would come up. And they were just cops. They wanted to do the right thing. They just felt they had to do that, and they probably did. You know, to right. make a lot of and keep a job. But they were cops. They were bringing me hats and books and stuff. And they they were at heart they were cops who still wanted to do the right thing. And um, I, it was it's interesting to see that you know throughout you know investigations and uh, getting back to uh, going forward to the Russian investigations that I was promoted to uh, you know supervisor position I supervised a, a drug task force multi-agency drug task force and they, they brought me back into the main office and I supervised a uh, we, we made a strictly organized crime squad and for us in, in when I was in Houston was uh, Asian organized crime we had the second largest Vietnamese population in the country in Houston and uh, there was a lot of trafficking, you know, human trafficking, uh, and people, you know, actually, you know, Chinese who would pay, you know, ten, twenty thousand dollars to get transported, and they would get extorted and taken advantage of. They would be shipped to Guatemala and then brought up through, you know, traffickers through Mexico and into, Jeez. you know, Texas and so forth. Um, but we also focused on Russian organized crime, and. That's when I, I developed a fascination for working Russian organized crime because the, the culture is, is amazing. I mean, they are tend to be very intelligent, um, very um, strategic, 
you know, I've often said that they're, you know, dealing with Russians is like dealing with chess players who are, but there are six plays ahead, while most people in the U.S. are probably, you know, they may think two plays ahead. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, so, I, you know, working the Russian organized crime, we, you know, we developed sources, and, um, and it was interesting to get to know them, their personalities, their, their culture, and uh, they could be, you know, the investigations could be very, very challenging, but uh, interesting at the same time. I'd love to hear more about the personalities and the culture of the Russian mafia, because I think I feel like 95 percent of the stuff we see in the movies and the TV shows is bullshit. I'd love to hear it from somebody who was actually involved. Well, I'll give you an example. One of the the investigations we had involves. um, It reminds me of of two things. One. I'll get back to the Russians, but one of the, the first cases I worked as a brand new agent was um, <laughs> an actual uh, Italian organized crime, Sicilian. It was part of the Pizza Connection investigations way back. In, in Galveston, Texas, there was a, a pizza uh, restaurant that was involved. They were trafficking heroin. And they were, <laughs> there were two, two guys, two brothers who owned the restaurant. They were involved with New York and you know, trafficking heroin, and we had uh, a Title III wiretap against them and the organization. And, um, it was rather, uh, it was kind of stereotypical as far as their personalities and everything, but uh, they're my, you know, as a brand new agent, it doesn't matter what your background is, for, you know, former prosecutor, you know, whatever. They don't really trust you at first to see until they see what you can do. So I never got to go on the surveillance until one day, or it was going to be a Saturday. They said, uh, "Dennis, won't you won't you help us on this surveillance?" And um, but you know, back then we didn't have individual cars assigned. I had, uh, I think I was assigned a car, but it was with two other agents and senior. So I never saw it. So if I ever needed a car, I would have to borrowing from another squad so there was a white color squad next to us and i went to them one friday i said hey if you got anything i need i need a car i need you know i got surveillance so oh yeah yeah there's this plenus fury whatever it was yeah you can take the keys. well there's a reason why that car is available because it was a junker so i get on this we're, we're in galveston we're sitting on the street and it's in february and it's raining, and we're you know we've got our you know, communications going, and they say, okay, the, the targets are leaving, and my car stops, and I can't crank it. And one of the other senior agents comes up, and he, he tries to crank it. And they're moving. He says, hey, I gotta go. I said, yeah, go, go, go. So I get out and I walk to a service station, like you know, two blocks away. And again, it's February and it's raining, and, and I, I I don't have you know. I get cold and wet, and they bring a wrecker over, and we jump the car. So I'm like, okay, I think I can still make it. So they made a detour and went to somebody's house before they get to the airport, because the objective was to put him on a plane, because he was flying, or both of them, they were flying to New York, and then agents were going to pick him up once they arrived in New York, following him. So the objective was put them on the plane. And it's like, other agents were doing it, but it's like, I want to do it. You know, I want to accomplish this. So I'm like, okay, I can still make it. So I've got the car going. 
I get by the airport. This is one of the two airports in Houston, but this is the one on the south side. And I get in front of the airport and I get pulled over by the police <laughs> for an expired registration <laughs> on the car. So I'm like, oh, fuck. <laughs> so anyway, I finally get up to the uh, park and get in Russia. I mean, you know, the guy just gotten on the plane, but I just missed it. Anyway, that's, that's the story. So getting, that reminded me uh, when we were talking about what is it really like? Okay, so the the case we had against this uh, Russian, and I say Russians, Eurasian. There were um, Russians involved. There were um, Ukrainians involved, and so forth. But the the group that came to Houston had kind of, I, I'm pretty sure they had posed as being, um, you know, Jewish refu refugees, and that enabled them to get into the U.S. Mm -hmm. I don't think they were Jewish, but, you know, it was a way for them to get in. And they operated a uh, car repair place. So it was nothing really sophisticated like you see in the movies where they're wearing the suits. I mean, you know, these were, you know, kind of goombas, like, like I was talking about with the Sicilian guys. <laughs> and in a way, they were comical, but they, they were able to pull things off because they were creative, they were smart. And we we never found it when we heard that they had buried a body in San Houston State Park. You know, where do you ever look for it? It's a huge park. So they were brutal at the same time. Um, and their strings were being pulled by what we call the Russian criminal enterprises. They didn't tend to have the strict structures like the La Costa Nostra, Italian La Costa Nostra would have, where they've got, you know, the, the you know, the head organization, and they've got the capos, and, you know, the lieutenants under that, and so forth, and the soldiers. They tend to be more loosely structured, but the, the higher the status of the organization, they can pull the strings of the, the local guys. So, um, and that was a smart thing to do, too, is not to be so strictly structured, necessarily, that um, you bring more attention. And, and that was true with a lot of the, the cartel members, too. The, the better ones wouldn't bring attention to themselves. They would, they would live in modest homes. They wouldn't drive, you know, the Ferraris and Lamborghinis. Um, and at some point, they would decide... Uh, you know what, I'm just going to buy a business and, and get out of it. But the, the greedy ones were the ones who kept wanting to advance and everything. And, I, and I've often said that it reminded me of this, I think it was Aristotle who uh, said something about um, it's not, it's not, um, it's not power, but it's the quest for power that's the intoxicant. Mm -hmm. And you know, you would see that a lot with the cartel members where no matter how much money they made, there's still that desire to put more in, in the power of being in charge and uh, amassing you know, wealth and influence that was the intoxicant. Right. And then the higher and higher they get up that hierarchy, the more federal mm -hmm. attention they get from our government. Yep. I mean, exactly. that's like the, that's like the classic the story of... Pablo Escobar, right? He, he got yeah. so big, started doing things that were way, way above 
what any cartel leader had done behind blowing up airliners and things. Yeah. Like now you got a little bit more attention than you bargained for. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it, that's a perfect example where uh, the ego gets, you know, mm. gets, you know, prevents them from really, you know, accomplishing what they, they you know, could accomplish. Right, because smart money is like, I'm going to get out, I'm going to buy some car dealerships, chain of restaurant, and go legit. Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know if I would say it now, but I know at one point South Florida was probably you know, riddled with all kinds of businesses that uh, didn't necessarily start out as legitimate. <laughs> yeah. Dennis, I know you guys weren't working drugs, you were working organized crime. And that mm. might involve drugs, which would bring in the DEA or maybe mm. the ATF with firearms or whatever. How did, how was your relationship with those agencies, and was there friction very often? Between? Well, in, in 1983 is when the FBI was actually given jurisdiction with drug trafficking too. Okay. Um, so, but it was we approached it from an organized crime perspective, where you know DEA may do more. Um, Overall, in, in a tremendous agency, and they would do more street level stuff, uh, in, as well as organized crime stuff. Now, like I said, when I was first promoted to supervisory position, it was I was assigned to the High Intensity Drug Trafficking Task Force, which is a multi agency organization where I supervised. Uh, I had FBI, DEA, Customs, um, Houston Police, Harris County Sheriff's Department. Um, I'm, I'm sure I'm leaving out agencies, but and then I had multiple supervisors too. Not only did I have my FBI supervisors, I had to answer to, to DA supervisors, you know, the administrator of the ASACs, uh, Assistant Special Agents Charge, and, and above. So it was a, a, a complicated position to be in because sometimes the agencies had competing object objectives, but you had to learn to navigate it all. And what I learned to do was, and, and I'll say this, the, the agents, the investigators, the officers on the squads would, for the most part, learn that it's a team effort. We're just all together. We're just trying to get the right thing done, work as a team, and, and we would do that. And it was when it came to the, the hierarchy above, the bureaucracies, when they were conflicts. Um, what I also learned was I, I kind of equate it to like being a football coach or, you know, whether it's pro football or, or, or whatever, that you would recognize your talent. I, you know, think of, um, you know, Belichick or something. I mean, he's, he's great for recognizing talent and putting them in the right places. So that's what I learned to do with, you know, agency personnel. It's like, what does this one bring to the table? What does this one bring to the table? The customs guy has all these connections with, you know, getting in and out of the country. The the Harris County guy has tremendous street creds. He can go out and talk to people. The um, the DA agent has tremendous undercover experience. And he, actually, he and I ended up going to uh, Belgium for you know extended period working on a, on a case. So. You recognize your talent and putting it in the right positions. And then, you know, getting back to the coach analogy, you would find that you would, sometimes you're like, well, 
I don't know, maybe this this player's not you know the best for the team. I'll I'll trade him. I'll try to get this other player that would be bad, you know, better for this position. So you find yourself trading with other supervisors sometimes when you could. Um, you know, it's like the you know the free agency draft and everything. So uh, it, it was all remarkable, and uh, the you know for like I said, for the most part, everybody you know, wanted to do the right thing. Get you know, just take take out the bad guys. So yeah, one team, one fight. Uh, Dennis, we have some viewer questions that uh, we need to get mm -hmm. to. Let me scroll up. Okay, uh, Richard Ballen, thank you very much. Oh, he just said he just donated. Uh, Jackson, thank you. How competitive is the hiring process for the FBI today compared to when you applied? You grad students? I don't have. Yeah, okay. Sorry. Please, no. I don't have the statistics, but um, at any given time, I think there are over a hundred thousand applications from qualified candidates. Qualified being you meet the educational age and um, experience requirements, which. Uh, you know, nobody, unless you're some, you know, has some amazing technical scientific uh, qualifications, no one gets hired right out of college. You have to be at least 23 years old. Um, and, again, they, they like people with real-world experience. So, at any time, there are over 100,000 or more qualified candidates who meet the criteria. And... At any given year, depending on the budgets and the hiring process, uh, the attrition rate, there may be 100 hired, there may be 50 hired, there may be zero hired, there may be 200 hired. It, it just depends. So, you know, you do the math and it's like one, you know, you've got, you know, 1% chance uh, of getting in or, or greater. Um, it, it just all depends, but the my my suggestion is this: don't let let that deter you. Don't let the statistics deter you because I didn't let it deter me. And um, if it's something you really really want to do, keep working on it. And there are other options too. I mean, there are analytical positions, intelligence analysts, and non-agents positions that are available also that are just as important you know, in, in the FBI and, and other agencies. And if if nothing else, get into one of those positions and then work your way in because you got your foot in it. And then uh, Jackson went on and said, do grad students stand a chance today? Yeah, um, you know, yeah. I mean, it's always best, better to have, you know, higher degrees there. I know... There were analysts working with advanced degrees, you know, master's degrees and PhDs, and even lawyers working as analysts. Um, so it helps uh, absolutely. Uh, there, you know, in, in the past, there was this emphasis on somebody getting a criminal justice degree or, or, or something like that. And I'm like, don't do that. It's, it's kind of like you'll learn what you need to learn. Don't. There's nothing you can do with a criminal justice degree other than try to get law enforcement. And it's not going to necessarily have to get in the FBI. Get a uh, business degree and, and then get an MBA, get a uh, master's in public administration, 
and now a big thing is is you can get degrees in national security and um and advanced degrees in that and i you know go that route um that's you know that's my advice right now yeah. it's the yeah i think there's kind of a misconception out there sometimes that agencies like the fbi or da but specifically oh, the FBI, like the cia that like they don't want you to have a degree in intelligence studies. Or, no one gives a shit. Or about that they that. want you. They, they're only going to take people who are former special operations in the military. Right, that right. That's, you know, that that's the big thing. When mm -hmm. that's not the reality at all. No, I mean they're they're, you know, percentage wise, they're probably you know looking back, they're probably thirty percent uh, FBI agents I work with were former military. Um, thirty percent, maybe twenty percent lawyers. You know, 20, 30% are accountants, CPA qualified. Um, I mean, this is a broad diversity otherwise. Uh, language specialists, former teachers, stockbrokers, um, you know, people who give up good paying jobs because they, they want to be an agent and, and you know, do, the, you know, do the right thing and be, you know, have the adventure. Um, there, there's no rhyme or reason necessarily. Um, but it is competitive, you know, so just make yourself, uh, my advice is make yourself as competitive as possible, um, but uh, have a fallback, you know, which is, you know, go into business, uh, do something. I mean, we have former bankers, um, you name it, business owners. Uh, just, just demonstrate that you've got what it takes. That's that's the biggest thing. It doesn't. They're not looking for people with certain backgrounds necessarily. It's just what you bring to the table. And how well do you do? You know, the testing and part of the testing is that you know there's an interview that's important too, psychological profile and so forth. And with the psychological profile, you know, the, the advice I was given is. Just be honest. Don't try to second guess it, and uh, <laughs> uh, and be yourself. Be honest in the psychological profile. That yeah. never tell the truth during the polygraph. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's it's funny. I've heard they're not even polygraphing anymore because I don't. They the one you know early on they didn't really do it. Sometimes with backgrounds they would they would do it. You know. Uh, Every five years, you have to have another background done. Um, but I've heard they're not even polygraphing anymore because I don't. I don't know if they found it that useful, actually. No. Yeah, uh, it's, it's it's a tool for inter for mm -hmm. interview pseudoscience. Yeah. yeah. Um, and last one from Jackson was also: Did you ever work with HRT? Um, I trained with HRT. Um, we would go back for training with them, and um, they were former HRT members who came to, um, who transferred to Houston and became on the SWAT team or SWAT team leaders. Uh, Jack Foley was, I think, my second SWAT team leader. He was former HRT. He was one of the former uh, original members of HRT. And um, there were others there. Uh, and, and I'll bring this up, too. When, when I retired from the FBI, I started my own company, Investigating Security Global Solutions. And um, about two or three years into that, I was recruited by another outfit called Risk Control Strategies to open an office in Texas, be their regional director, 
and the uh, the president of uh, RCS was um, Doug King. Now, Doug King was one of the original members of HRT also, and he, he was a badass. And uh, our um, the CEO of RCS was Paul Raiolis, who did a New York, he was a Manhattan DA's office, he did a bunch of stuff, phenomenal guy, too. But, but um, what I learned from, you know, working with Doug and, and Jack, there were things I, I they did that I never knew until they, they would be willing to tell you the story, but um, Doug got jammed up, he got uh, injured in a helicopter, you know, falling out, basically falling out of a helicopter one time and stuff. But but every year, uh, they're about, and, and I don't know if they still do this, probably do, but there are about four HRT members who um, get to go to a BUDS training. So um, actually Doug and, and Jack, and I didn't know it when Jack was a teammate. He never talked about it. They, they went through BUDS training. And, and as a matter of fact, Jack held the record for the, the fastest run um, and I'll, I'll bring in uh, Delta Force also because Delta Force was instrumental in setting up HRT. It was actually modeled uh, after Delta Force and you know, SAS you know, prior to that. So uh, a lot of Delta Force uh, personnel were instrumental in, in establishing HRT and getting, getting it going and the, the principles and the, the testing and so forth. So to answer the question, yeah, I, I worked with uh, HRT members, training with them. We'd go back to training, and, uh, um, you know, it's a good group of guys. They're, they're really good at what they do. They're, you know, it's like the um, paramilitary version of Special Forces, uh, really. And there are a lot of former you know, Special Forces guys on there. Um, yeah, like, I, you know, Delta doesn't talk a lot, you know, obviously, and I've worked with the Delta guy, first the Green Beret, former Green Beret, um, and the FBI, and, and Air Force Pararescue. Uh, there's, there's a guy on, on our team that did that, which they did a phenomenal job, too. I mean, they're kind of unrecognized about their capabilities. Uh, a lot of good, good stuff out there. Um, and I currently have a, a relationship that... Um, in, in the private sector and with some some things I'm trying to get going and the group of us are trying to get some productions going with that will help um, assist veterans and uh, businesses and so forth and and I'm working with um, I have a couple of volunteers from Green Beret who are willing to, to help me with that uh, currently on duty and they're going to try to get you know, Army and, you know, to commit to it, too. Um, it's something we'd really like to get accomplished is, is getting this this program going where we go out. It's a team. Uh, it's a team concept where we go out and help communities, veterans, businesses, veterans, you know, get, get their acts together and try to get things going. Kind of like the Green Beret does, you know, worldwide, where they go into community, other countries, and, you know, assimilate to the community and try to, to um, you know, get uh, the, improve the communities and so forth. So uh, I'm just throwing that out there. Is, uh, Dennis, would you like to yeah. plug it? Would you like to tell us what the website is or the company? Or anything? Yeah, um, let, yeah, let me get back to you as far sure. as, you know, we're, we've, we've got, you know, uh, I did a, a production. I was uh, 
the executive producer and host of Amy Investigates the, the Plot Against America, you know, which aired a couple of years ago. Um, we did a year and a half investigation. Um, it, it started out as so it's, it's a long story, and, and I'll try to simplify it as much as possible or make a short story longer. But um, I was approached um, back in 2018, I think, by a journalist out of New York who was working with a production company, and they were looking at putting together uh, a show about. Um, undercover operations, and they were going to put together teams like they picked me, they found me as you know, somebody with undercover operation experience, and it was going to be this concept where they put together these teams that was kind of like a competition. But in the process of, of talking about uh, myself and, and everything, I, it's one of the most fascinating things I did in the Bureau was working Washington Warriors. And I said, as a matter of fact, a, a friend of mine, a colleague of, uh, in the private sector, who was a former cop, told me that there was Russian organized crime in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. I go, what? I'm, I used to work Russian organized crime. I haven't heard that. He said, yeah. And started, the journalist and I started looking into it and researching it and found that, yeah, there's a big population of Russians in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee, in Gatlinburg, Pigeon Forge, in a big resort area that you know it's huge to have over 10 million visitors a year in the area in the early 2000s there they had been a, a, a murder of two russians who had an employment agency by um another russian and he had left but then he i guess he got prosecuted in russia uh, at some point and you know russian um cops came over so in what happened is they started, law enforcement started looking into it. There were Russian clubs in the Smoky Mountains. There were businesses, restaurants, mm -hmm. and they found that there was organized crime activity, but it kind of went away or went underground. Now, um, so the the network, which is a &E at the time, was fascinating. They said, oh, yeah, let's, let's pursue this. So we went to uh, Gatlinburg, and I identified a... Uh, well, we found a couple of PIs who, um, private investigators who we thought had some information, talked to them, and they said, well, there are these rumors about these prostitution rings, there are these hotels and apartment complexes and this and that. But, you know, actually there's this car dealership that just set up like two doors from us that um, is Russian-owned. They had, they had 50 cars, and now they've got like, you know, 250 cars. So I said, okay. So that night I went back, did my database research, and I linked this car dealership to um, a, <laughs> a modeling agency and a uh, medical massage business. Mm -hmm. So, you know, put two and two together. And um, so this this colleague and I, this phenomenal guy, he owns his own investigative agency too which I ended up going back to my my agency and my company and running that but um, and I'll touch on that later but he and I went undercover to this car dealership like we're searching for cars and, and the, the workers were rushing and said how do you need to go talk to the, the owner we go in and he's sitting behind this big wooden desk and there's a chair sitting you know kind of 
perpendicular to it, and there's another chair. So I sit in this one, and my, my colleague sits in this other. And we're talking to him about you know, buying some cars. Like, I'm moving to the area from Texas. You know, my, my story was that I, I just got divorced by, you know, my wife took me for a you know, million dollars, and I don't have anything to do with American women anymore, you know, greedy, and, and, you know, my colleague's talking about buying a car for his wife, but he doesn't want to pay sales tax, and, and uh, so we're in the, the, the guy, the owner, he says, well, you need to find the Russian woman. And I'm like, well, yeah, I know a couple of guys have done that, but it takes like a year for them to get bought over and anything. I'm not that patient. So I'm trying to get him to buy, you know, hey, I've, I got some girls, you know. The phone rings and he picks it up. And the woman is talking so loud, I can hear her. And it's the, the manager of the hotel across the street, which we were told has a lot of prostitution. She says, there, there's this. Guys filming you from an SUV from across the street. And he goes, were they were they American or foreign? You know, which was an interesting statement. It's like, why is he concerned about it being you know somebody foreign? You know, what that that was really very interesting. Yeah. So we're we just like we don't you know we don't know we don't hear anything. So um, he, she says, well, they moved to you know they went away. So he hangs up. We continue talking like nothing happened. Five minutes later, the phone rings again, and um, she says, they're back. They're just at the corner. They're still doing it. So he stands up, and he turns into the bear now. So he says, well, I'm going to send my guys out, and we're going to get their, their license plate. So they do. They start, a couple of guys start heading toward the car, and they're filming them as they're driving away, coming toward them. So it's very dramatic. So we, we figure out, we're going to turn the tables. We're like, what the hell is going on here? What, well, we are we being filmed? I mean, we're just talking about some illegal stuff. He said, "No, no, no, no. I've got security cameras, but they're you know you don't have anything to worry about." So we we stayed another twenty minutes just talking about you know cars and you know, women and stuff. And, and finally, you know, we get up and leave. But um, so there's that. That was in Knoxville, Tennessee. But we we started looking at why is there such a sizable population of Russian and Eurasian in, in this part of the country, you know, Smoky Mountains. And what we found was there was a lot of documenting, you know, interviews and on uh, television and articles and stuff about a Oak Ridge National Laboratory scientist, nuclear scientist, who was tasked with going to Russia after Chernobyl and after the fall, you know, of the... the uh, the Soviet Empire to check on the security of nuclear facilities and nuclear weapons and and, and uh, this nuclear scientist had gone over there and uh, so we started and he started uh, he had this epiphany when he was there because he was confronted not confronted he was encountered by like 20 or 40 kids in this apartment complex who spoke perfect English who are you? What are you doing here? You know, and he explained it, and they came down and started talking to him. And he he said that he had this epiphany. It's like I don't I don't want to create weapons and bombs that would kill kids and women and you know pets anymore. So he decided to create an exchange program. And there's this this local Duma guy that he teamed up with. So they created an exchange program to bring kids over 
uh, to work in uh, Dollywood and you know the resorts there, which they welcomed because they didn't have enough American kids who could work in the summers and everything. So this exchange program started in the early nineties and it assimilated into this huge, you know, Russian Eurasian population in the area. And but the the circumstances surrounding the scientists being there was that um, he uh, and he, he talks about it. He talked about it like. Uh, you know, I was warned, you know, be careful, you know, don't stay away from the women and everything. But what happens, but he ends up marrying the translator that was assigned to him on the first trip. He um, described being, going to this, with this Duma guy that started the exchange program. And he had this overwhelming thirst. So they stopped at this, you know, water kiosk on the road. And they're talking about, you know, hey, I want to have make sure they're good kids. And they're this tall, good-looking blonde, Russian woman, just who speaks perfect English, behind them says, oh, I couldn't help but overhear you. Um, I can provide, uh, I'm a teacher, I can, you know, provide kids. And, and along with other teachers, we can come, you know, get this going. So I, you know, based on, on my experience and training, and, and I consulted with, um, a, a CIA officer, former CIA officer who works with my, my company now, and uh, other another CIA officer who had been you know worked in Russia, and they go, yeah, that nothing happens in Russia by coincidence when you're you know American official or otherwise, and it was it was all in our opinion it was all set up. Really, they found out that this this uh, American nuclear scientist from Oak Ridge. They've been working with youth groups, you know, prior to that. So it was a perfect opportunity for uh, them in inserting operatives, you know. And what we learned also was that, you know, translators, the Russian translators signed, they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't FSB you know, officers or anything, but they, they had to report. So we set up this operation investigation and enlisted, uh, we ended up enlisting uh, two former FSB, um, one former FSB officer and intelligence analyst uh, who had defected, and, and that's a whole other story, you know about them, uh, to help us with uh, the investigation in the show. And we set up this ultimate um, interview of the scientist and his wife, and we're able to, uh, you know, the, the former FSB officer was able to elicit from the, the former Russian uh, translator that she got a job at Oak Ridge National Laboratory and she didn't even have to get a clearance. She, she got a job, but she had to report, she admitted she had to report to FSB wow. about what she knew and so forth. So anyway, that was the crux of the show. And, um, you know, we basically uncovered a, and intelligence, at least the, the groundwork for the intelligence operation, didn't catch a spy um, because, you know, when the network said, uh, you know, we want you to catch a spy, and, like, you know, it takes the FBI <laughs> years to do that with all kinds of resources and manpower. But, hey, I'll give it a shot. I'm, right. I'm in good sport. So that's, that's what we... Uh, Yes. We, uh, I think we yeah, lost I think he froze. 
we'll see if he comes back here. Yeah, it'll probably pick up in a second. Uh, sometimes it uh, And this is a good time to thank you. Uh, please, if you haven't already subscribed to the channel, hit that like button, share it far and wide. And if you'd like to see all kinds of exclusive content, uh, it, you know, maybe the seedier side of life, <laughs> um, uh, join our Patreon. Uh, a dollar a month will, will get you access to our exclusive content. And there's a link down there also for uh, the merch. If you want to get yourself a little Team House coffee mug. Uh, I We just lost him. Yeah, well, thank you guys for uh, joining us tonight. Really appreciate it. We'll try, we'll try to get Dennis back. We'll probably dial, dial back in. Um, but in the meantime, thanks for joining us. And if any of you have any questions or anything for, for Dennis, get him in. Or since we're here for, for a few minutes trying to get him back, if you have anything you want to ask Dave or I, um, feel free to shoot him out there. Um, yeah, so I'll just uh, say a few things uh, about what's going on kind of in the background here is we got D producing now. He's behind the scenes. You can't see him. We'll get him a camera one day. One day. We'll get him a camera one day. Uh, here's Dennis. Okay. <laughs> Hey, so you, uh, you cut out right there just as you were talking about how you had uncovered the groundwork for an intelligence operation at this nuclear yeah. lab in Tennessee. Yeah, and, and you know, Oak Ridge National Laboratory is the um, top repository in cutting uh, for nuclear weapons and for U.S. government. And yeah. it is a... Um, they're on the cutting edge of, of developing a lot of uh, technology there, so it's it's a very sensitive area. Um, you know, some you know government agencies had, had kind of I think dropped the ball, and, and I never blamed the FBI or anything. There's, uh, I'll just say, it, Department of Energy um, probably. Well, I'm, I'm probably not there. <laughs> you know, they're. It's probably not uh, real happy with me, but um, they there's some things. There were diplomat, you know, diplomatic considerations, and you know, like scientists had uh, there, there was a a protocol in place for interviewing scientists, and the FBI was involved too, and in you know making sure they weren't compromised. But sometimes there. Uh, the in the sense of cooperation and you know politics that security would take the you know backseat when you know things were overlooked and there are other incidents that uh, have occurred where I think scientists have been compromised that were kind of swept under the rug mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. anyway yeah um, that's that's an amazing story uh, we have a few more questions Mike thank mm -hmm. you very much for the generous donation. Dennis, amazing to hear from you uh, and Colson. I'm also an attorney by training applying now. Given your mm -hmm. SWAT background, do you have any advice as to how to attempt to position myself for NSD, CT, CIRG with no mill experience? You know, it's just, it's just what you bring to the table. I mean, I was, um, it, it, it doesn't, like, again, it doesn't matter if, if you don't have a military or, you know, police background for that type of, if you, you know, if you're athletic and you have the desire and, 
you uh, you stand as good a chance as anybody else. So just just pursue that. Let them know what your intentions are. It doesn't mean you'll get that because there's this um, saying in the Bureau, it's the, the needs of the Bureau. It doesn't matter what you want or uh, ex expectations. And, uh, you know, that's the thing about the new generations, the X generations, Y generations, and so forth. It, it's been a little, I think, challenging for, for them that, you know, they come in with expectations. And But the bottom line is if you're, if you're really right for the part, you'll do whatever and bide your time. And at some point, you'll get your opportunity. So just... But, you know, let, let it be known what your interests are and work toward that. Yeah. Um, thank you, Brother Dank. Uh, can you tell us about the Russian capabilities FBI borrowed for the Waco Sage? A telephone-type subliminal device. <laughs> a psychic hotline. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know anything about that. Um, I, Come I on, will Dennis. say this. The Russians were very, very um, cutting edge in, uh, you know, psychic uh, research. And, you know, it's actually one of the topics we, we have on our production team for looking at some of the experiments they've done. And um, the CIA's done it too, uh, as far as, you know, psychic abilities and research. But as far as, you know, what... I, I have no idea as far as any of that at Waco. I, I, I think you're holding out on us on the, the online <laughs> control device, <laughs> Dennis. I, I think you are. Um, yeah, right. But but you all jokes aside, you're right that the um, the U.S. Army had a um, a remote viewing program. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe maybe mm -hmm. someday we can get one of those because they're still out there. The well, guys who yep. served in they, that they unit. We're we're, we're familiar with the the guys in that. So yeah, we could. We could uh, pursue that, and, and, and actually, I think there's something there. It, it really is. Um, I, I even had. Well, I'm going to reveal a secret. Okay. In the um, the plot against America, um, I actually, uh, I had a friend who had some abilities that gave me some advice in, in that investigation. So. Um, I you know I think there's some of that that's real, and, you know. So it made you a little bit of a believer. You think you think there is something something mm -hmm. to it, something yeah. that we don't quite understand yet. Yeah, I think there's a lot of things uh, that are out there that um, you know you, you can't take for granted. And as an intelligence agency or anything else, if you don't at least look into it and pursue it, then you know you somebody else is going to. So, right. you know what what the CIA's done in the past, and you know with the remote viewing, and mm -hmm. and, and I think there's something there. I mean, from what I've read, and you know, there are the experts out there who, um, you know, the, it's worth worth looking into. It. It's yeah. an interesting topic. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it really is. I, I've probably read like five books written by people who are in that, that army program. Well, the, the Men Who Stare at Ghosts is kind of the most popular one. That, that was written by a journalist uh, who looked into it. It, mm -hmm. it. This is a huge, huge segue uh, away from what we usually cover on the show. But I, I think two, three percent of the time that there's a real phenomena taking place. I, I think mm -hmm. there. I don't think it's total BS. I think there's something yeah. happening there. 
in some instances. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of um, like I, I'm not at all a conspiracist. I mean, all these you know conspiracies out there about you know this and that, and I'm like, yeah, I'm like, hey, the real world, you realize that that's just not the case. I mean, <laughs> but there there is a certain percentage, like you say, where there's something there, not you know conspiratorial, not these big grand you know conspiracies or anything but there's there are um it, you know the human mind and everything else you know but like they say we only tap into a small percentage of what is uh, really there and you know as i get older that diminishes even more but uh, so any, anything any help i can get with uh, <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> i, I, I welcome it so um Lando St. Clair, thank you very much. And he asked, uh, how often, if ever, did you work with postal inspectors? You know, I, I did. I've actually worked with them more in the private sector with my company now who went on to, to work at other agencies. And they're very, you know, I found the ones I've worked with be very talented, very uh, capable uh, people. So that's, uh, you know, investigators and um, very competent, very well qualified uh so that's uh you know my hat's off to them well do you have any that you could send to the post office over here because they're mm. <laughs> um yeah now what types of cases might you might a postal inspector work on you know, there's, there's a lot of fraud, you know, credit card theft and, and things that they work on, but it, it could get as complex as, you know, uh, a serial killer or a bomber sending things to the mail. You know, they're the experts then when it comes to looking at, you know, tracing things. Um, so, uh, like I said, I've, the ones I've dealt with have uh, been very, very impressive. Uh Dennis, is it okay if we steal you for like an extra 10, 15 minutes to do the sure. bonus segment? Yeah. Oh, thank you, man. I, I really appreciate it. And um, thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight. Um, Dennis, any kind of final thoughts, anything we failed to cover that you'd like to say before we kind of wrap up tonight's No, episode? it's just, um, uh, I'll, you know, I'll just plug my, my company's Investigative yeah, Security yeah. Global Solutions, and we're, I've got, you know, probably about eight, nine, ten retired FBI agents working under my umbrella, I've got a former CIA officer, CIA officer, and um, um, two former Air Force OSI agents who also did, you know, force security in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq, and uh, local, you know, uh, police detective, um, and we're based out of Texas, uh, Houston and Austin. I live in Austin now, and we're we do a lot of good stop i mean it's kind of it's kind of like that we're working as you know, the bureau again a lot of sophisticated work and we're we're looking at putting together a uh, actual show a program about uh what we do some interesting cases some uh challenges you know based in texas primarily because there's so much here uh you know uh, missing diamonds um you know thefts of trade secrets uh you know uh oil guys stabbing each other in the back and stealing stuff. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Dennis, I, I think there was, I, I think we were talking at the same time when you said your company name. Do you want to say that one mm -hmm. more time? 
Yeah, it's Investigative and Security Global Solutions. Um, I try to shorten it to ISGS, um, but we're, we do all kinds of investigations, A to Z, uh, corporate, you know, family, high net worth, you name it. And we do security work, security consulting, risk assessments, and then some personal protection. Um, just uh, it's... It doesn't replace the bureau, you know, the government work, but it's we, we we have fun. We do a lot of good work, and occasionally we'll get a case where we're, we're just like we did, you know, in the bureau. And uh, you know, I have a network across the country and across the world that conducted investigations and you know, surveillances, and at times in five different states and two foreign countries. Um, and you know, we're like I said, we're working on a you know, a show concept where we feature some of our investigations and some of our talent and show you what it's really like out there, you know, what it's uh, like out on the streets and conducting surveillances and so forth uh, with, with a lot of interesting, you know, talented guys. How, how long have you had that company for? Uh, believe it or not, 12 years. Over yeah, those 12 years, have you seen a shift or a change in the types of investigations you do, or has it been pretty much the same you know, I, I always say that there it comes down to, our, you know, basic there's fraud. There's always fraud. You know, employee fraud. Um, there's a lot of, um, you know, people who steal from their companies, you know, trade secrets, and then go create their own company, similar companies, and take the clients. And uh, there's a lot of that. There's... Um, we, we deal with a lot of wealthy people who... Uh, are targets of opportunity who have, you know, thefts or they're trying, they're infiltrated. And we even had, you know, Russian or organized crime, you know, actually infiltrate some, some families, wealthy families. Um, you name it. It's, it's just, uh, it's fascinating. We, we sometimes deal with some cold cases, you know, where unsolved, uh, murders and, um, you, uh, it's it's really hard to describe all the things we do because it, it can vary day to day. But um, uh, it's sometimes it's mundane, but a lot of times it's it's fascinating. Uh, like I said, it doesn't replace the government work. Where but what I've realized is, you know, we're uh, you know I run a company and I'm, I want to make a profit. I want to you know, be successful. But what I've realized is that all of us are still wired as public servants. Mm -hmm. We still like helping people. We still like working as a team. We still like solving things to help people out. So that's that's what we're best at. Dennis, this has been really cool, man. And um, again, I just want to thank you for uh, jumping in at the last minute yeah. and, and coming in. And I almost had very I, I had no idea what to expect myself. But this was really cool because you talked about some things that we have never discussed on this program before. We interview mm -hmm. a lot of like CIA operations officers. We interview a lot of like former Green Berets and stuff. But mm -hmm. you talking about undercover operations, undercover FBI operations, targeting drug cartels, uh, targeting the Russian mob. We've never really gotten into that stuff here before. So this is like kind of all new material for us. Good. Well, um, you know, invite me back and I'll, I'll be glad to 
ramble on more. You know? Yeah, man. No, we thank appreciate you. it. And thank you for everyone who joined us live tonight watching the show. Really appreciate it, guys. Um, please make sure that you subscribe to the channel. If you haven't already, give us a little thumbs up. Leave some comments down in the description. Tell us how you think we're doing. And uh, there are also some links down there if you want to join our Patreon and support the show and also get access to the bonus segments like the one we're going to do with Dennis in just a moment here. Thanks, Harry. Take care, Thanks everyone. Thanks for what you're doing, guys. Thanks, Thank guys. you, Dennis. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.